Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 133. I know that as someone who is celibate, I have a unique position to speak into that conversation and be like, no, forced celibacy is harmful. Bridget Eileen Rivera is a sociologist completing her PhD at the City University of New York Graduate Center. A homeschool graduate and alum of Patrick Henry College, Bridget has become a leading voice on gay celibacy in the church, helping Christians better grapple with gender and sexuality in a divided culture. She's the author of Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. She lives in New York with her partner. Uh, I just said a word that may have y'all going, what the fuck? (laughs) Celibacy. I'm having Bridget on the show today because she approaches this in a way that I have never seen before, which is the only reason I'm comfortable having her on the show. Because she does not let her choice to be celibate be used against other queer people. And in fact... She uses it as a way to undermine the arguments for forced celibacy. So I I realize this is a controversial topic. I realize it's a topic that can bring up a lot of harm, bring up a lot of trauma, especially for those of us who've come out of religious context of where forced celibacy was presented to us as the only option. Bridget's book does one of the best jobs to unpack and show why a traditional theology of forced celibacy is wrong. And she does that all the while (laughs) fulfilling this idea that a lot of Christians have that gay people should be celibate. And and so she's, she's using it against them to open up doors for all queer people in our faith communities. And so we're having a conversation about that. And I think it's really powerful. 
We're not talking about why she chose celibacy, why she believes celibacy is the right option for her. We're not going into any of that. We are talking about why forced celibacy is wrong and how Bridget argues that both in her book, but also in in other areas of her life. No announcements today, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Bridget, hi, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, yeah, I am just, I'm thrilled. I'm so excited about this conversation. So to start, this is a question I ask everyone. What are your identities and how has your faith helped form those identities? Okay, so, you know, that is like such a big question that I'm like, I feel like I can't actually list out all of my identities in sure, like, right. you know, a, in a single response to that. But I would say some of the big identities that come to mind when someone asks me uh, that question in no particular order either. So nobody take this as like, oh my gosh, the first thing she said is like the most important thing to her. I uh, am a Hispanic woman. And I'm mixed race. So my mother is Puerto Rican. My father is Irish. And that's where I get my first and middle name from, Bridget Eileen. Those are both Irish names. I was named after my grandmother on my Irish side and my great-grandmother. And so I'm Hispanic, mixed race, and uh, I identify as a lesbian, as queer, And uh, I also, and this is like something that I don't actually talk about a whole lot, but it is a pretty big part of my identity. I identify as someone who has navigated chronic illness. Uh, That's been a really, really big part of my journey. Even though it's not something that I discuss a whole lot with people, I find it to be stressful to talk about. Um, (laughs) but that has been a really big part of my life for a very long time. And then I am a Christian and I identify as a Jesus follower and faith is, I guess, the driving force of my life, probably the most important thing in my life. I shouldn't say probably it is. (laughs) And I would say pretty much everything in my life is kind of organized around my faith and my relationship with Jesus. I'm so curious what that has looked like for you. Like I I can, you know, make some assumptions as a lot of us have similar stories, shared shared experiences, but I'm curious, like what has it looked like, especially figuring out you're queer, that you're a lesbian and I imagine the tensions <laughs> that that brought up. Can you kind of walk me through what that has looked like for you? Yeah. So I grew up in conservative evangelicalism, like I'm sure many people that are listening did as well. So it was a very scary thing for me trying to work out my faith and coming to the realization that I was queer because honestly, I had just never thought that it could even be possible. I uh, I grew up in a reformed Baptist church and in, in the reformed church. Um, and anyone who's familiar with reformed denominations can probably relate to some of what I'm saying. 
I, I was taught that gay people are predestined because in Reformed theology, predestination is a really big thing. Um, and so I was, I was taught that queer people are predestined to hell. And that was kind of just a unequivocal, unquestionable thing. And it was never necessarily like a big deal in my church context. It's not like we spent a whole lot of time ever discussing it in detail. And I think part of the reason why it was never discussed in huge detail is because it was just such an assumption, um, such a basic part of the mindsets that existed there. So it could just be referenced briefly in conversation or as an example of such and such without anybody ever thinking twice about it. And so I, of course, never thought twice about it um, until I started realizing that, oh, shoot, I like girls. Oh, no. That was like legitimately, I think, like what was going on in my head was like, oh, no. <laughs> what, what age was that about? <laughs> you know, it was actually pretty late. Um, I really did not start fully comprehending what was going on until I was around the age of 23. Um, I, uh, during college, had started figuring out that I had feelings for girls, but like... I did a lot of burying, pushing that to the side, not thinking about it. A lot of kind of thinking that maybe this is just something that everybody experiences. This is just a phase, yada, yada. And so I never really actually dealt with it, even though I had started figuring out that this was something. And so it didn't really start to... I guess, come together and become a, like a realization for me until I was around 23 years old. And yeah, that was like a massive whammy in my life. And I think, honestly, I, I know a lot of people will say that that is like really late to kind of come to understand your sexuality. But I do think that for those growing up in conservative evangelical contexts, where um, for queer people, we have been, you know, intentionally almost shielded from ever coming into contact with our sexualities. I think it's probably more common because it's like walls are just put up everywhere to like prevent us from even ever thinking about it. And so, you know, I never understood why I was the way I was, why I, I related to people the way I did, why I liked the things that I did. You know, I had such an innate knowledge that I was different, but I had no ability to name that difference, to put a finger on it. And so it was just this like discomfort like constantly in the background of my existence that was always there, always overshadowing everything until, you know, finally at the age of 23, I was finally able to be like there. That's what that's been this whole time. 
And it was like at once terrifying, but also at the same time, as terrifying as it was, and as much of a spiritual crisis it threw me into, there was also a bit of relief also at the time to finally understand something about myself that I had never been able to understand before, that I had been cut off from knowing for so long. It was almost like there was like a part of me that had been holding its breath for years and years and years. And like, finally, that part of me was able to like, breathe out. (laughs) And that felt really good, even in the midst of so much uncertainty and like spiritual fear. There was also an element of relief that also came with that. Hey, I'm really struck by the language that you just used there, the the ways that you were cut off from knowing yourself. I I think that hints at a lot of the work that you're you're doing right now is addressing the systems that cut us off from knowing. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that. I think that's probably one of the big things that I tried to do with my book um, is to name some of these artificially imposed systems that the church has built around gender and sexuality that don't actually come from scripture, don't actually come from any real understanding of the gospel, but have in fact originated by the prejudices and biases of people, of human beings. And you know, we're, we're told that these things are, you know, part and parcel with believing in Jesus, but that's just not the case. These, these things have been artificially imposed upon our faith, and they cut us off not just from knowing ourselves, but from knowing Jesus Christ. And that is something that, I don't know, it just, it does so much harm to people, and it's not being acknowledge is not being talked about. And so in my book, that's really kind of what I tried to focus on is getting people to see how the church has messed things when it comes to gender and sexuality and uh, to see uh, what that cost has been for queer people especially, but really for everyone altogether. And uh, I really, really believe that the church can grow and get better. I don't think that we are stuck here in this place that we're in right now with, you know, church schisms happening all the time over LGBTQ issues. I don't think it's going to be that way. And I do, you know, oftentimes look past examples of controversial things in church history And, you know, one of the examples that I bring up in my book is like, you know, the issue of baptism and, you know, 500 years ago, people, you know, Christians were killing each other over whether or not you baptized babies. And now it's just kind of like, oh, that's cool. You're getting your kid baptized tomorrow. Good for you. 
And, you know, nobody really like, I mean, like there are some real diehard people that still exist that are like, no, I believe in believer's baptism or I believe in infant baptism. Like for the most part, everyone is just kind of like, you know, hey, it's cool. You know, whatever, you know, you believe what you believe. I'll believe what I believe. You know, we're all Christians. So, you know, I look at that, (laughs) the fact that, you know, we were able to get past a history where we were legitimately killing each other um, and get to a place now where we're like, we just recognize that we are all siblings in Christ. And I really do believe that we can achieve that future also when it comes to gender and sexuality in the church. I, I think that's something that is so fascinating to me about your work and especially the work that you, you've done in your book is that you're not really out here trying to make a theological claim, although in some ways you are. And, and that claim would be the legitimacy of queer people existing. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that feels like theological stake. Yeah. But you're, you're, you're <laughs> approaching it. I'll back up. Where I've seen a lot of people approach this conversation is from a, I am going to shift my theology to the Bible validates queer sexuality validates kind of this this what we would understand as like a newer the non-traditional kind of approach to lgbtq people and then so we come in we say queer people are good relationships are are great we can undo all of this harm because queer relationships are valid Mm -hmm. um you walk in and i feel like take a different approach of instead of we're jumping to this new sense (laughs) you're Mm -hmm. coming in and saying from a traditional perspective, let's undermine mm-hmm. every single one of these arguments and yeah. show how they're invalid regardless. And, yeah. and I love that. Like there were multiple times as I was reading your book that I put it down, like stood up and clapped. It's <laughs> <Which is> so <laughs> dramatic. But like you undid these arguments in ways that I have never seen them engaged with before. Wow. Well... <laughs> That means a lot to me to hear you say that, because that is one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I would have so many moments where I would just be pulling my hair out because I had like so much that I wanted to say. And I was like, nobody else is saying this. Nobody else is naming this. And you're absolutely right. I was trying to come at this from a place of like, let's actually come at this from traditional theology. Uh, And let's actually look through, given what is already believed, like is not controversial at all, actually, what traditional Christians already assent to. And like, let's actually go through what that implies about about gender and sexuality and and how we approach it and you're yeah you're right i um, was really hoping that people could see that regardless of where your stance is regardless of whether you are approaching this from a liberal theological lens or a traditional theological lens the end result is uh, ultimately very similar in the end, which is let queer people have their own spiritual journey and um, give them the freedom to 
um, decide for themselves how God is asking them to live. Give queer people the freedom to read the Bible and come to their own understanding of what God is saying in scripture. You know, give us the freedom to uh, have a walk with Christ where we figure things out and make choices for ourselves that are not forced upon us. And at the end of the day, whether you are a liberal theologian or a conservative theologian, if you are committed to the gospel, if you are committed to scripture, you are ultimately brought to that same place, which is let queer people be free to engage their faith honestly with Jesus Christ. And, and that's really what I hope people see when they read my book. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Well, and I feel like that comes across so clearly, at least to me, reading your your work, and and also the way I see you engage online in these conversations, especially on Twitter, because because you are in a in a celibate partnership. Is that the language you would use for it? I don't normally call it a celibate partnership. Um, we, uh, I guess, the term that we use is queer platonic partnership, um, which is a term that has actually been used in the queer community for a while, especially the asexual community, though it's not limited to ace people. And so we use that term queer platonic partnership, but normally when we're just talking, we just use the term partner. I mean, that makes yeah. sense because you are, yeah. we are partners. Yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> also makes sense because I think I mean, obviously, that word celibate brings up so much, <laughs> so, so much. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's general knowledge for the most part in your work that, I mean, would you even say that you're celibate? Like, is that language you would use? Yeah, I I freely will uh, tell people that I'm celibate. And, you know, it's not something that I make point of, like, you know, leading with, mostly because I... I don't see it as actually super central to who I am necessarily. It's definitely an important part of my life, but I don't know. I just don't feel like that's, you know, something necessary that I, you know, always have to make sure people know right away. Uh, And so, you know, I think most people know that I'm celibate, especially online, you know, people who are getting to know me in person will eventually, you know, know that I'm celibate and that my partner and I are in a queer platonic relationship. And 
I I definitely can say though that I do have an interesting, I don't know, I guess a torn relationship with talking to Christians a lot of times about being celibate. Uh, just because like it just it makes me cringe the ways that I don't know, people will often respond where there's like this assumption that I have made the holy choice um, and like, good for you. You know, what a sacrifice you've made for the kingdom. You know, what, what an example of obedience to Jesus Christ. And I just like, it just like makes me cringe because there is so much underneath a comment like that. Uh, you know, not only that, like, I am the holy one, I have made the holy choice, but also that, like, other people that are, have not chosen to be celibate, that, you know, are, um, are married or in dating relationships and exploring marriage or, you know, exploring, you know, what kind of sexual relationship they want with someone, that they are somehow on the wrong side of God. That just, I don't know, I just, I get so flustered (laughs) by that because it's like, I don't even know where to begin with all of, like, where do I even start? In some ways, that's why, again, (laughs) that's another thing that I wanted to do with my book is to have a place where I break down why it is so harmful to force celibacy on people. Um, from someone who is celibate herself, let's break down why it's harmful to push this on other people. And felt like I needed to do that because a lot of times when there's arguments out there by people, you know, arguing that forced celibacy is harmful, the, uh, you know, response a lot of times is, oh, they're just saying that because, you know, they want to continue to, you know, live in their sin, you know, or whatever it is that people say. And I know that as someone who is celibate, I have a unique position to speak into that conversation and be like, no, forced celibacy is harmful. I am just so tired of um, seeing so many queer people who are also celibate, but are not willing to put themselves out there and just say that forcing celibacy onto gay people is wrong. I've honestly just been so tired of that for so long of like sitting in conversations with people and having them like divulge this in private, but then never ever say it in public or like just outright, you know, state the opposite or just ignore the issue. And I want there to be more people who are willing to step into this uh, and speak out against it because ultimately we are all one community. Like as queer Christians, we are all one community. And if we are not all able to thrive in our relationship with Jesus Christ, then all of us are going to suffer. And, you know, ultimately, you know, forcing celibacy onto gay people, you know, harms 
gays who are celibate just as much as it harms queer people who are in romantic relationships, um, just in different ways. And so, you know, ultimately, I think it's important to, you know, come together on um, this issue uh, and uh, to, you know, really work together to improve the situation in church communities across the board. And I really do hope that my book allows that to happen more, that it opens doors for that to happen, and that there will be more people who are willing to step out of their comfort zone and be like, yeah, this is this is important and we need to do something about it. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think that's what I so appreciate about your work is that you are not willing to let anyone use your identities or or your convictions even as a weapon against other queer people. And I think at least historically, and this maybe it's just my own experience, like we weaponize each other. And, and not mm-hmm. just we as queer people, but like <laughs> the church itself, mm-hmm. you know, chooses the handful Uh of us that are saying you know for celibacy or the other or the other options of like fully affirming and Mm -hmm. and we get pitted against each other and i think there's legitimacy to these conversations that then happen but also Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. that weaponization is is so heartbreaking yeah Um, and you're standing up and saying no this isn't gonna happen and then you also have the arguments and have done the work to mm-hmm. undo some of the popular arguments that are out there. Yeah, I think that's been such an important thing for me. Um, it's been a huge priority for me is to address that weaponization of stories. Um, and there is a tendency to like pick the trophy stories that can be elevated and pointed to, to be like, see, this is what you should be. And that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to have such a full cast of um, people's queer people's stories in my book. Um, I actually, I interviewed over two dozen people. I was only able to include 12 of their stories ultimately. And I wish that I could have included more, but even within the 12 that I was able to include was really important for me to show the full range of queer experiences, the uh, ways in which, you know, people, you know, arrive at different points in their journey, the different ups and downs, the different ways that relationship with God might be felt or experienced, um, how things are different depending on gender and, you know, race and even age and, you know, types of churches that you went to and things like that, just because I didn't want people to come away from my book with, you know, just kind of like a a very limited idea of who queer people are. Um, I wanted people to come away with an understanding that like, like queer people come from all walks of life, from all places with a vast range of experiences. And the one thing that we all have in common is trauma from the church. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, and like really wanting to be like, that is actually <laughs> what uh, is like the big deal that needs to be addressed. I, 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 like, I want to read two of these burden summaries from your book. <laughs> um, these, are the, <laughs> these are the first two, just so people can kind of hear some of the things that you're naming. So the first one you, you say, like the first burden that LGBTQ people bear in the church is that many straight Christians tell gay people to be celibate forever, even as their own tradition has evolved to eliminate any similar requirement for themselves. Lifelong celibacy is possible, they say, but most don't believe it. Most only say so when talking to gay people. So that's the first one. <laughs> and the second one you name is that no matter what queer people do, how they live, how they talk, or how they define their own experience, when many Christians meet an LGBTQ person, they see a pathological sinner, a pervert. All people sin, but LGBTQ people are sinners without grace. Like, whoa. <laughs> Both of those feel so true to my experience. And and I think yeah. like you are one of the first people I've heard who've been able to name that with such clarity. And there are five more <laughs> that you name yeah. in, in, in this book too and unpack in really profound ways. I am wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about those two burdens as you name them. That, that sense of like pathological center, but also that sense of uh, celibacy only applies to queer people. I guess I'll start with the idea of being a pathological sinner. That chapter really, it really evolved for me from starting with looking at Freud and uh, like really unpacking what he believed and the ways in which the church just kind of adopted his mindsets, um, just kind of hook, line and sinker. And just kind of tracing through the impact of that. And, you know, the whole thing with Freud is that he is the one who introduced this concept of homosexuality as pathology to the Western world. And he is the one who inspired all of the clinicians to start trying to find a cure for homosexuality. And you know, all the experimentation that took place on queer people to, you know, try to rid them of their homosexuality. And this whole idea of looking at queerness as pathology is uh, something that traces back to Freud. And it's something that the church just completely swallowed and uh, very quickly integrated into their understanding of gender and sexuality to where you can look at um, things that were written and are being written the next gay ministries and you will read uh, reasonings and thought processes that legitimately are textbook Freudian psychology but with a Christian twist. Um, it's like, you know, spiritualized Freud. And what that really creates is it's a pathological spirituality. It's a way of turning sin itself into a pathology. And so that's why you get, and, you know, a lot of ex-gay ministries, you know, let's, let's look at your relationship with your parents 
and your father, he was abusive, wasn't he? If, if you had had a better relationship with your father, you probably wouldn't be gay right now. You know, things like that. And, you know, let's look back on your past and like, what sins have you committed in your past that you haven't repented of? And, you know, like, you know, you've got, we've got to like dig up everything in your history to find the root cause on your homosexuality. And then, you know, we're going to do things that will ultimately help you, you know, walk away from that, including, you know, prayer and repentance and training yourself to act a certain way and think and and speak a certain way. And I don't know, the list just goes on. The list legitimately goes on. When I was at one church, I was given like a massive list of things that I needed to do in order to, you know, protect myself from sin, which included things like don't go into your roommate's bedroom. Don't sit on the couch with another woman while the both of you are drinking wine. <laughs> you know, like, uh, and just like random, like the list starts from like, pray to God and repent of your sins to like, just like, it just like, it's just so let's unpack everything and control everything in your life. But it's treating LGBTQ people in a pathological way. It's treating sin as a pathology. And so it sin is at once something that you can be cured of and also something that is um, destining you to hell and uh, making God hate you. And it's just like, it's so twisted and messed up. And honestly, like it really, it really messes people up in terms of their relationship with God. Um, and it can be really hard to recover from because it creates these patterns of thinking about faith and thinking about spirituality that can be really hard to retrain yourself to think about in more and healthier ways. Right. Because that place of straight people get the grace. And I think this is even one of your burdens. Like straight people get the grace, queer people don't. Um, mm -hmm. And not only that, like we have a part of ourselves that is inherently sinful in like a different way. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, that just messes so much up within yeah. ourselves, especially when we're raised in, in that world. Yeah. But you said about how like all people sin, but LGBTQ people are, are sinners in like a very different way. That's something that I, I tried to highlight in that same section of the book. You know, I think it's just so ironic because my whole life, the whole concept of being a sinner saved by grace was, you know, constantly being referenced um, that, you know, all of us are sinners, but, you know, Jesus saves us. Thank God for his grace. And it's, you know, really interesting because Christians will admit to being a sinner. <laughs> and that is like not something that has to be an identity that is like, you know, who they are. Whereas like when a Christian says that a queer person is a sinner, like it means something completely different. Like in that moment when a, 
when a Christian says that a queer person is a sinner, they are defining you in that way. They are defining you by sin. And it's like so ironic to me because like one of the things that I hear a lot is, you know, when people will be like, why do you call yourself a gay Christian? How can you identify with your sin? Okay, who is really defining who by sin right now? Because it's definitely (laughs) not me. Mm. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, all I have to say is like, people need to pick up your book. Like, it is is one of the few books I think approaches these things in ways that are fresh that I haven't seen people in these spaces write about ever. And I'm so grateful for you for doing that work. Yeah, um, thank you so much. Like I I can't tell you how much that means to me. I really appreciate that. So how can people find your work, find your book? Yeah, how do people do that? So you can follow me on social media. My handle is Traveling Nun on Twitter and Instagram, as well as Facebook. And as far as my book, my book's title is Heavy Burdens. And you can buy that pretty much wherever books are sold, as they say, whatever you know your favorite publisher is. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> whatever your favorite retailer is. Um, and you can also buy it from the publisher. Brazos Press. Um, And so, yeah, you know, you can just type in heavy burdens wherever you like to buy your books and it should pop up. It's pretty easy to find. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. As I said, before we started recording, this is a huge honor. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. You can find Bridget on Twitter and Instagram at Traveling Nun. Be sure to go pick up a copy of her book, Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. It's available wherever you get books, and it truly is one of the best books that I have read on this topic in a very long time. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is made possible because of you. To find out how you can become an active listener and help keep Queerology on the air, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. And until next time, y'all. Bye.